to be heard from the west to the east I worked in my craft and I prayed for my time on the scene The man have never left my team, 19, love the right cream Now I'm not a right breed, but I might be In my crease, now kids hit up my G I'll still never sell out my theme Well, you know about heritage, you go inherited Don't chill with this Alright, so welcome to a new episode of Common Sense Podcast I keep spoiling you guys because today we've got an amazing guest Kenneth Kirkia, he's a friend of mine, a personal mentor And he's somebody who I just think is dope he's by far one of my favorite people to speak to we have wonderful conversations on the phone and you guys get to listen to one of them today uh kenneth is a new york times bestselling author with a book called big data you can still get it he uh, used to be seen the editor at the economist now he's a deputy executive director he was also the uh, technology editor at, at, at wall street journal in hong kong i mean He's a visiting fellow at Harvard uh, uh, University. He's also a board member at Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. I mean, Kenneth is just right in the intersection of tech, big data, society, politics. He hosts a podcast to you at The Economist. I mean, he is just brilliant. So rather than me tell you uh, how amazing he is, listen to this great conversation where we talk about a bunch of things. We talk about how the war in Ukraine might actually end. What does an off-ramp look like for Putin and, you know, what's next? We talk to you about young people, how they get involved uh, with kind of shaping uh, journalism and data in the future. We talk about hypocrisy. I mean, we just have a really good conversation. So please take a listen and let me know how you find it. Always, before you listen, do you hit the subscribe button? Do you hit the follow button wherever you're watching this? We want to grow this podcast and we want to do it with your help. Kenneth? Thank you so much for, <laughs> for being a part of this. Um, it's been a while since we last spoke. Um, and between the time we, we last spoke and we're speaking now, of course, Russia, Ukraine, I don't have to say anything other than that. I did try to make this podcast not a running commentary on what's happening, but it would be remiss of me not to ask you what you think because you're right in the thick of it, thinking about these issues, you know, writing about these issues at, at you know, the biggest and most important publications in the world. Um, my question might cause a bit of a mental jar because you're probably in the middle of an article now, but but I'm going to ask you to pontificate on how this all ends. How do you think this all ends, uh, Kenneth? So I'm not the person you know, reporting on Russia and on Ukraine. In fact, we have people in Russia and in Ukraine and around the world doing that and editing it from London. I do have views on this. Uh, and the... Typically, the, the view is an uncomfortable one, and that is that there's two ways it can end, badly or very badly, but there is no good that would come out of this. Uh, and the people who then try to dress up a good of, say, the, a, a union of the Western alliances, that is a, a, re, a remuscularization of the democracies, are missing a tick. I think that's just seeking and striving for to pluck out the good um, out of a bad situation, <clears throat> and it's only still going to be bad. What really bad looks like is the detonation of a tactical nuclear weapon by Putin. That opens up the world's eyes to the fact that he has this capability and is unafraid to use it. And that changes geopolitics for the conceivable future uh, in a very menacing way. He could still use it and in other occasions, and that would be, of course, terrible for people and human freedom. Um, he could just simply threat to use it and we still then have to, this still distorts how the world goes. What is bad, not very bad, is simply the dismemberment of the Ukraine, suffocation of it, in which it becomes a territory of Russia, either in name or in fact. And uh, it may have a puppet government or, or some government that is linked somehow to Moscow, or one that always stays somewhat rebellious, but is always getting pounded and beaten up as sort of a rebel province uh, with an insurgency uh, and and just and the lives of ordinary people being completely destroyed in that setting, whether they're a combatant or a non-combatant, everything about that looks bad. So what could we do about it now? Uh, I do think that there are some options that we're not putting on the table. And that is that although the West is rightly applauding itself for its very vigorous sanctions, economic sanctions that it's imposing on 
uh, Russia, I think that on one hand, that could go too far uh, and that we would be in the danger of taking some of our weapons that we can use as a threat and using it too soon, because I think we're going to still need them in reserve. Secondly, it applauds us for our input, our activity to do something, not our output, what the outcome is. And of course, we should judge a policy by what it produces, yeah. not the fact that we've implemented it at all. So if you were to use that optic and look at the sanctions, although we can feel good that there has been a unified front by the West, we have to understand that by doing so, we've just simply upped the stakes and the tenor and the tension in the Ukraine, and Ukraine is now being bombarded in a way that was scarcely imaginable three weeks ago. We're in week three uh, tomorrow uh, of, the, of, the, of the invasion. So we can't say we've done a good job. Uh, what I do think we need to do is create an off-ramp for Putin. He doesn't want to be in the situation that he's in now, but he doesn't want to look weak. We have to find a way that he can save face but get out, and we need a new yeah. accommodation. If we in the West and we as creative people uh, who, who value liberty and decency can't design a something to, if you will, a, 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 a off-ramp, a way out for, for Putin to back down, then it's our fault because we yeah. need to be the creative ones to actually provide that way for him to save face but also then to call off his bombardments. Yeah, I mean, the, the, really fascinating what you're sharing there because there have been lots of commentators who've said a bunch of different things about kind of the blame, if you like, that the West has to kind of take in all of this in creating the or, or allowing there to be a a, a a system that allows something that allows this kind of aggression by Putin to, to take place in the first place. I want to probe you on something. And I would love to get your thoughts on it. Now, I am asking you to do something pretty wild, which is to see into Boris Johnson's mind. But here's, here, here's where I'm asking. The keen observers, those who maybe watched PNQs and saw the last um, um, uh, session in Parliament, or perhaps even the one before that, where we had a, an address uh, from, from President Zelensky himself, Boris Johnson spoke, and he used a phrase, he spoke about how he's certain that Putin will fail, and he's certain that Ukraine will win. Now, for those who aren't familiar with PNQs and how it works behind the scenes, the, the prime minister has given a, a bunch of policy notes. He's given uh, by researchers. They tell him, you know, what he should say, what kind of questions are coming up. And so those words are chosen deliberately, you would hope. But he asserted it again that in the last PMQs. He said, Ukraine will win. We're going to ensure the Ukrainian people win. And I just wondered, hearing you say that this can either end two ways, badly or very badly, what does Ukraine winning look like, Kenneth? So, um, Mike, sit down, my child. <laughs> <laughs> Someone needs to tell you what the lexicon of British politics and British Oxford PPP is, okay? When someone at the Oxford Debating Union uses the word certain, that means I have no frigging idea. <laughs> and when someone in politics uses the word certain, that means I have no frigging idea, but the media will report it as strong and everyone will forget about it tomorrow. I just want you to say it, Kenneth. <laughs> okay, good. So as long as we're clear about that, yeah. Um, um, secondly, Boris Johnson is not scripted. You know, he he revels in the fact that he is going to be the bozo, the clown of politics and British politics. Uh, sometimes it leads to he says it as a foreign minister, and it leads to imprisoning British citizens. Um, sometimes he says it, and it you know about how he handshakes people at at hospitals, and then gets COVID and gets put on life support, and months later is having a party. So. This is a person who words have no meaning to it. He got fired from jobs as a journalist because he was saying that he was reporting things that were just blatantly untruthful. Yeah. Okay. So I wouldn't put too much stock on the fact that that there there that there once was a scripted universe for British prime ministers and that there once was integrity 
for British prime ministers and that what Boris Johnson says has any weight whatsoever. I would discount it. But, but, you know, but you know, people do listen to him though, Kenneth, and that some people are holding out hope that Ukraine might win and Ukraine might, you know, uh, that Putin, as you said, you've spoken about the reality there. You know, you, you can't see the world through this realist lens, something we share, which is that, you know, Putin, someone who's got an ideological fetish, perhaps, or who's got a kind of messianic plight, he might call it. The idea that he's going to wake up one day and go, "Ah, oh, you know what, guys, let's just let's just stop." That's not going to happen. So realistically, he needs an off ramp. There's going to be some things he wants, some things he's willing to kind of let go of. But I'm just saying, in what scenario does it happen where the Ukrainians can actually maintain the sanctity of their kind of landmass, their country, you know, kind of get Crimea back, um, and also be able to kind of exist as a self-determining nation that goes we want to be part of nato we want to be part of the eu like does that happen for them at all or are they kind of this sub-country next to aggressive russia so uh, we need to th we need to think out loud about this because we have there's no playbook and there's no answer and we really don't know what would be effective we're right in the middle of the situation right now but let's take that challenge together uh and with the audience as well and think out loud what would work and, and what could the future look like well, one model would be that you have East Ukraine and West Ukraine. You have a portion of the country that, just like in the Cold War with, with Germany, that belongs to the sphere of influence of Russia, or actually is actually part of sort of quasi-Russian territory. And the other one, which is, we'll say, quasi-independent. I use the word quasi because I think you would have a puppet government in, in, in one of the Ukraines that was tied to Moscow. And you'd have a DMZ, demilitarized zone, running ac uh, across it like you do with North and South Korea. And in the, in the portion of Ukraine that is allied with the West, you would have a, uh, a, an independent government. But I say quasi-independent. And the reason why is that it would be a, what we'll call, quote-unquote, a neutral country insofar as it would not belong to some of the Western institutions, it would not belong to NATO, it would not belong to the EU, because that would be perceived as being too antagonistic to the other half of Ukraine and therefore to Mother Russia. However, it would still have a degree of autonomy uh, and quote unquote, dare I say, so I mean, should I say dare I say sovereignty, sovereignty, so that it could actually uh, make its own decisions and people there could live free and you wouldn't have the restrictions on the media and you wouldn't be beholden to Moscow. That to me sounds like, um, to some people who are sort of, who are embedded in the, we'll call it February 27th, February 26th mindset. Yeah. Um, this is abhorrent. This is disgusting. This is appeasement and it's only going to invite further hostilities. And, you know, today it was Ukraine, tomorrow it's going to be Poland, and the day after that it's going to be Leeds. Maybe. To me, actually, um, I'm maybe um, a, a realist with brass knuckles and a lot of friggin' tears. So it's to say, I think that sounds okay. And the reason why, why I would accept that accommodation is because for people in the Ukraine, they will live. People will be able to go back home if they are refugees. People who are there who want to get an education, want to have a job, want to lead their lives and don't want to die, won't die, but the bombardments will stop. And so I value that idea of liberty. Now, that doesn't mean we still don't have a problem with Putin. We do. That yeah. doesn't mean that we, that we don't have to deter him at every single point uh, in the universe. And we will have to do that. And that will be a generational challenge, a civiliz civilizational challenge as well. So it's not sort of appeasement from a faraway land of which we know little. That's not it at all. But it is, I would consider, a very realist approach to say um, he has manipulated the environment as well as expressed uh, an a willingness to take heinous steps that we in, in civilized places think is repugnant and abhorrent. And there's very little we can realistically, there's many things we can do, yeah. but there's some things that we can't do. We can't get rid of them. And so if we have to live with a world with Vladimir Putin, we can hope for a palace coup and a, and a change of government, but we can't presume that that will happen. We can't presume that the new person will be um, markedly different, probably different, but not, maybe not markedly so. Um, so we're going to have to, in a way, accommodate this world uh, and, and hopefully live to fight the battle another day. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it, I find it fascinating. You know, I, I, because... 
you know, maybe a non-realist take on this might be to say that the minute democracy, you know, the very nature of democracy is, it's, it's all or nothing. You kind of don't have a part democracy or kind of democracy. It's, it's, you either have full democracy where countries are self-determining, you know, so on and so forth, or you don't have it. And I, I was reading online, I was reading an article that was spoke about, you know, kind of what Putin say demands would be, you know, kind of what might help him stop or what an off-ramp might look like, you know. He spoke about a neutral Ukraine more generally. He spoke about a, a, recogni a recognition of Crimea as belonging to Russia and also two uh, kind of Russian-speaking regions that he's already declared <laughs> that he's freed them. Um, you know, and, and, and a part of me just wonders, you know, doesn't the U.S. and I know that that was home for a while, and now we now you know doesn't the U.S. have this this uh, this um, this uh, well-known phrase that the U.S. does not negotiate with terrorists, and it seems as though what the West seem willing to do now is to, on the grounds of rhetoric, you know, beat their chest, talk about. Ukraine will, sorry, Russia will fail. But as it comes to what we actually do, say, policy-wise, practically, more and more folks seem to be open up to this idea of kind of negotiating with Putin. But how does one negotiate with a terrorist? Well, I'm not suggesting necessarily negotiating with Putin. I, by offering him, an, by providing an off-ramp, it is signaling uh, what it would take uh, for, for some sanctions, not all, to be lifted. Uh, and for and giving him a plausible way of being able to say, I won, um, I got what I wanted out of this, and um, and and now and and let the bombardment stop and bring the troops back home, right across the border, right or or with a with a new border that includes the Russian speaking um, uh, regions. So that would be it's not one that we would negotiate in fact we might actually say we still don't agree with it but because the bombardments have stopped we're allowing the banking system to work again or we're going to yeah. buy we're going to buy some russian oil um whatever uh that we that what we judge would be which isn't going to put such extreme uh, uh sort of damage to the russian people because of course these sanctions are are going to hurt the global economy yeah. Okay. I, I think it's a price worth paying right now. Uh, it's going to hurt the Russian people. I feel very badly about that, but I think it's what needs to happen. So I'm in favor of the economic sanctions. I think they. I, I fear that they are actually going way too far, um, particularly because of all the really? unilateral sanctions. Um, only because, not because I don't think we need economic sanctions at all. Again, it's purely realist. It. The sanctions might be going too. I, we don't really know if they're going too far or not. Yeah. They might be going too far for two reasons. One, they're simply upping the tenor of the of the airstrikes, so they're hurting Ukrainians far worse, um, far back very badly. Let me say. Yeah. But secondly, Putin, as as odious as he has been, could be ten times odious. What are we going to do to prevent that? We need the threat dangling in the back rather than the that rather than the if you will, latent rather than kinetic, you know, rather than the threat that's no longer thought that's been implemented, um, it would set a new standard. They'd, they'd be harmed even more. But if once the rubles decline 30%, you really want it to decline another 10%? They don't care, right? It's already collapsed, right? Yeah. But, but we need these tools if he goes nuclear, if he invades Poland, right? If he continues bombardments or uses chemical weapons. These are terrible things to think about. I mean, it makes me nauseous to even say it, but I'm not saying that I think the sanctions have gone too far because I believe that we should not use sanctions. I just think that Putin can do a lot, lot worse than he's already done. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm in agreement. I just wonder, I mean, you always wonder with sanctions, what is the goal, if you like, to speak in your terms, what, what does said policy achieve rather than, you know, you know, what does it signal, so to speak? And, and if they're not preventative in nature, because you can't prevent a thing that's already happening, you kind of wonder what is the point? And it seems as though the fairest reading might be to reduce the Russian economy to rubble so much so that the Russians themselves rise up and and demand that things change. But of course, I, that happening is not is is, is quite a far far cry. One because you've got a mass media manipulation happening in Russia, but then two, you know, dissent. There's no place for dissent. You know, I do wonder though to get your thoughts because you know, 
I know you're the uh, you're a techn- tech- you can correct me if I'm wrong here because your your CV is so lustrous that I don't I, I'm gonna get something I'm gonna trip over myself at some stage. But I know you're that you were technology editor at, was it at the Wall Street Journal for, uh, for a bit, and now you, you, are, are, are you still senior editor at the Economist? Uh, I've got a different title, but it, that's good enough. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> that's a working title. Um, exactly. What 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 are your thoughts on the kind of how this war is being covered? Um, you know, uh, you know. I spoke on Twitter. I don't know if they saw it. I tweeted, "Thank you to the journalist in Ukraine," because I, I find it so crazy that you know there's a war going on and there's there's journalists literally, you know, meters away sometimes from blast and things happening, and they're still reporting. But also, what are your thoughts on on the kind of the Russian uh, coverage of this war and what Putin's doing uh, to kind of quash and quell dissent uh, in Russia? Well, um, so there's the the r- coverage in Russia about the war, of course, is completely false based on its propaganda, based on government reports of their liberation and the great victory. And of course, Putin is, is going in to denazify the country from a leadership that are a bunch of uh, drug addict, drug addicted Nazis. I mean, it's... Um, can't you can't really respond to that in a in a reasonable way it's 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 just pure lies so there's there's very little you can say now they've implemented a new law which covers all journalists notably western media companies that basically makes the very act of of independent journalism a crime and so as a result most media companies have had to either sus- either suspend operations or actually pull out their journalists because they felt that there were going there was going to be harm um, and many of the journalists are being uh, being tailed by Russian secret service um, they were before and now it's there's more and it's more obvious they're afraid they might get roughed up um, so places like Bloomberg have pulled out their journalists um, places like the BBC have basically told the journalists that they're not to report um, but the day may come that they can again uh, for the moment. And so that's been the situation in Russia vis-a-vis the media. And that's going to stay for a while. Russia is going from a totalitarian state to a dictatorial state. And the it's becoming a, it, it's as bad and perhaps will be worse than it was during the Stalin era. Yeah, uh, It doesn't have camps yet, the gulag. But the repression can be different and can be quite forceful, in particular because it'll be abetted with technology. Not right away, but you could imagine a world in about two years in which to keep his iron hand on the levers of power, he implements a digital police state rather than just a police state. And it'll look like what's happening in China with the Uyghurs, but, um, but happening across, across Russia. And he'll, the only way he'll be able to actually do that will be with uh, Chinese technology. And he doesn't have the money to pay for it, but he has the natural resources. And China, to fuel its growth, really loves natural resources, whether it's commodities or oil. Oh, commodities as in wheat and, and, yeah. and, and, and minerals. And so you can actually imagine a geopolitical realignment that in 10 years we look back and we see two authoritarian countries, China and Russia, and, and Russia a vassal state to China and, and rather than a peer. And the reason why is that the economy of Russia is about the size of the economy of Spain. It is a very uh, small country in terms of GDP. It's propped up on oil and they don't have much more than that. So it's, um, so it's, it's remarkable that, and also I think this is also gives the West an opportunity yeah. if we use this moment creatively to realize that three weeks ago, he was trying to make his sort of victory lap after 20 years in power on his, you know, to create a legacy for himself as the great unifier of the Russian lands, first with Crimea in 2014, now with the rest of the Ukraine in uh, 2022, and and probably had eyes on expanding even further into the, into the former Soviet, the other former Soviet republics. He's been checked. He, he thought he, it was, he could do it in two weeks or three weeks. He thought that he did think that many people in Ukraine would welcome Russia with open arms, although he knew that there probably would be a resistance, but he thought he could just march right through because superior force would terrorize 
the population, the defiance he wasn't expecting. He also expected that his military would work um, in a much more well-performant way and yeah. was certainly not expecting the fact that very basic things weren't happening, whether it was supply lines, whether it was uh, what looks to be deliberate mutiny among some of his troops, not wanting to, to, to fire onto civilians, or whether, as we know, um, his own cryptographic algorithms to allow for secure communications were totally compromised and so therefore unworkable. Uh, for all these reasons, he doesn't want to be where he's in right now. It is messy. Um, he doesn't want to take over a country that he's just obliterated and flattened with bombardments. Uh, he, he, this was to enshrine him as the as sort of an Alexander the Great figure of Russia for Russian history, and now that's sort of falling apart. That's why I think we need to give him a way out, even if it's just a fig leaf, so that he could actually back off and he could become the tyrant and the dictator that he was in February 27th, but not the, um, the, the slaughterer that he's become in the last three weeks. Yeah. Hey there, just a quick one. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. If you are, please, please do me one favor. Just hit the subscribe button or the follow button. Let me know you enjoy this by doing that because it allows us to grow this podcast, to invite even more amazing guests on and to keep on having these conversations. If you're listening on uh, uh, you know, Apple Podcasts, you can leave a review, uh, give us some stars, give us some feedback, let us know how you find the podcast. All right, back to the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree totally. And I think a realist lens does help to kind of at least, you know, defogify, if that's a term, or defog, probably a much easier term, um, you know, what does seem like a very complicated end for, for all these moving parts. I mean, one of the, one of the things that's been more interesting, or, or, or I guess kind of uh, uh, really, uh, I keep using fascinating, but that's like, that's the word that comes to mind. This is the first world war or war or conflict, like kind of in real time, that seems to be, you know, if you, I mean, Afghanistan, you could, you could, you could, you could look at that, but, but re really where we've seen social media really being utilized. Um, so, you know, whether it's, you know, memes, meme culture, or it's the Ukrainian Twitter page posting memes. I don't know if you've seen these. Um, <laughs> it, but, but of course, it, there's also issues. Uh, fake news is on the rise. You know, there's all sorts of different things we were told were, um, were, were, I don't know if you saw the ghost of Kiev moment. Do you remember that? Where there's this guy on TikTok, there's, there's a guy that apparently took down by himself in a fighter jet, was taking down lots of Russian planes or something, or, or sorry, Russian kind of jets as well and uh, missiles but apparently that's just it was just fake news what's your thought on like on just fake news social media especially in kind of a tumultuous time tumultuous times like this people say in times like this it's time to kind of you know double down and trust traditional or legacy media types whereas some are saying take a look at russia the the only people who are i'm going to use this term descriptively woke in Russia, I must be the only person using that term descriptively in today's age, right? But the only folks who are those folks who can go online and, and try out alternative media sources, you know, and who don't trust kind of legacy media. What's your thoughts on, on all those? Well, I think the media consumers need to be savvy, right? And just as you would buy a product uh, that could have, um, you could buy an organic juice that's freshly squeezed, or you can buy some sort of, you know, fizzy drink that is loaded with e-numbers and, um, and, uh, and artificial coloring and artificial flavoring, and you can actually see the label and choose. It's true we can't see the label, right? There's no like content labeling for media companies, but we do have history, right? We've got this open source test to see, um, are they, have they been accurate before? How do they respond to uh, inaccuracies because that happens among even the most well-meaning publication. Do, are they open about it? Do they uh, explain to readers what the mistake was and, and correct it? Uh, and do they institute practices that show that they're not going to have those same mistakes again? By that standard, then, you could look at Russia Today and the New York Times, and you could come to different conclusions about their the quality of their content. One is independent. The other one is, is, is nakedly partisan, right? So uh, one has... Uh, systems in place dating back decades, um, over a century in fact, this is the New York Times, 
to to hand, to ensure that the news is fair and accurate. Uh, and when there is in, uh, inaccuracies, they correct it and they correct it openly. Russia Today doesn't do those things. Uh, it's a different medium, of course. One is print. One is 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 pr primarily well, one is primarily print. One of the other ones primarily digital or actually um, uh, audiovisual. But nevertheless, um, we, it's not that we are blind to it when we wake up on you know March 9th, twenty twenty-two, and we we innocent little flowers. Must must and then news consumers must decide and and come to some sort of um, Bayesian inference of objectivity that we're going to give both the reason the benefit of the doubt or be equally suspicious of both but for accurate information from the New York Times Russia Today. The only person who would do that would be an utter clown and probably with a political motive. So we have this history, and I think that legacy news media organizations are important precisely in times like this because they have a sense of um, fairness and, and objectivity and impartiality, um, specifically um, at, the, uh, at The Economist, we were aware of the fact that in a period of a war, both sides will have an interest in manipulating uh, how they describe events to their advantage and in effect, try to run a misinformation propaganda war through the media. And that we, as a media, independent media organization, would need to be, of course, very suspicious of what the Russian uh, government would say. But we need to actually be also critical uh, and, and, and not you know, be non-critical of what uh, America and the Western democracies communicate as well. That's just what we do. Right now, we don't put it on par because it's a very different environment that they're in. One uh, vaunts freedom; the other one actually is a dictatorship. So it's it's a totally different environment. But it is to say that legacy media organizations do think about this and do do strive to verify facts before they publish it. Yeah. On social media, there's no such verification whatsoever. So there, it is really non-hygienic. But, but you know, it's quite beer. interesting, though, Kenneth, about that. So, so I'm inclined to agree with you, and and you know, and and I know lots of people who, who who would say some of the things, especially folks who work within media. Now, the Elderman's Barometer of Trust, um, as of January 2022, their polling was that 67 percent of people globally believe that journalists, professional journalists, and news outlets purposely try to mislead them. And so that that's a really kind of crazy number. That's essentially two thirds. But also, what I've seen, I, I've I have more kind of nominal examples of friends who've messaged me and said, "Yes, Russia's bad," but the kind of articles they're reading about Russia's motives and Putin as this deranged, crazy person who just has this kind of bloodlust. It, 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 they would call that, or they have called that. I've, I know, I've sought to bat some of them down, but they've called that kind of Western propaganda, essentially. And so they go, this is just you telling the story from the Western perspective. But, but, but in what way are we provocating and actually, you know, prodding Russia? Sure. And what's the other okay. side here? Yeah. So, Mike, you need better friends. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that, that's basically, that's the reality. Because... You have to be, your friends have to have a really comfortable life. They have to be, they have to be in a really pandered environment hmm. to look at what's going on in the Ukraine and to see some sort of moral or amoral equivalence between the Western media reporting on families who are being shelled and, and having their apartment blocks blown to smithereens and having to leave the country what, Comparing what? The, the the person doing it, Putin, and the media companies who are reporting on it and casting it as something bad. I mean, let's let's dwell on this for a second because it's really important. Um, how could someone actually come to the conclusion that you're suggesting that that we should be suspicious of the way the West is portraying? I mean, let's let's just maybe to put it into their own lives. If they're minorities, yeah, maybe we should just say. Um, you know what, the Ku, the Ku Klux Klan, you know, needs to be given the benefit of the doubt because there's two sides to every story. And 
the idea that all races shouldn't be held equal and that there's an inherent dignity to human life that needs to be considered precious and that we all have regardless of external features like the color of our skin, that is just actually Western propaganda. And you know what? The media companies, the journalists who are saying that, they probably just want something from us. Maybe they just want our money. But I think we should really be suspicious of that. And the fact is, it could well be the case, and we should really examine that actually some races are inferior and therefore deserve to die and drown in their blood. Now, yeah. anyone who would actually say that and try to advance it, it would be reprehensible, it would be disgusting. It, you know, the advancement of civilization is to take that frame of thinking and to call it out for what it is, that it's racist, it's wrong, it's, it's actually a crime to say that it, 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 with a bloodlust to it, it's a hate speech, as right it should be. And that's the exact same sort of parallel to what's going on with the Western media reporting on the Ukraine. So I think that minority view can yeah. see some for form of moral equivalence or that nothing, that there's no weight to our words and to what's going on, that there's yeah. that they're just sort of intellectually on a balloon up into the air, hither tither, not weighed down to any form of values. That's a form of intellectual nihilism that actually openly invites the terror that we're seeing in global so, politics today. By the way, so I, I'm in total agreement. And I think, you know, anyone who sees what's happening in Ukraine on a very kind of, you know, basic level, and, you know, sees it and doesn't feel any type of way, I'll, you know, I'll be very worried about. The criticism, though, isn't just about, you know, the, the way it's been reported on Putin's side. It's far more about hypocrisy and how the UK government governs itself, right, when it makes friends and its bedfellows with other regimes around the world that, that, that do hub, morally abhorrent things, that, that, that you know, that, you know, take part in, 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 in multiple human rights violations, the way the coverage is of conflicts, say, happening in Yemen or happening in Somalia, the way it covers conflicts happening in Afghanistan, in Iraq, the way that's covered in the mainstream media versus what we're seeing right now, that's what they go, to, to, to borrow a phrase, well, why don't we keep the same energy? It seems as though, and this is what people are saying, it seems as though the the outcry, if you like, of this particular conflict dwarfs what we've seen, we've ever seen before from the British media. Of course. This now, is that geographic? Is that because of geographic reasons? Or is there something else going on, on here? Is, why do we feel differently to, about Somalia, say Yemen, than, we've, than we feel about Ukraine? I mean, part of it is geographic. Part of it also is just sort of staffing. Like... We can get someone to Kiev in, in in an hour flight from Germany, right from Munich. We you know if we need to if we need to. So this is not right now, but I'm saying that so in, it's actually more convenient. You're saying? Oh uh, well, no, I think well, no, it's not that. It's re. I mean, it is that if as a matter of speaking, but it's not actually that. It's about resources. Part of it. Part of it is. Part of it is just simply a resourcing issue. Um, that um, it is easier to get a correspondence that I'm now talking about November, 2020, when yeah. intelligence showed that there was a military buildup on the, on the border of Ukraine. It's just easier to, to get correspondence there. In fact, you probably have stringers there already. Um, you probably can call people. You, we have, at, at The Economist, we've got a slew of people, we've got a score of people, 20 people, who've been to the Ukraine back and forth over the last few years, just reporting on this and that. So. It's just sort of easy to do. I mean, going to Sudan, getting someone, getting the insurance, getting the Kevlar, getting the, you know, the sat phone uh, and, and putting someone there at a, in a war zone, like that's just, it's harder to do, right? It's a lot more expensive to do. So not everyone can do that. That's just part of it though. That's only a small, but it's, it's not a zero element to it, but yeah. it's, it's just a part of it. The other is that if there's a crisis that goes on in a developing country, it really matters for that developing country and its neighbors. But here, if it's Russia and the Ukraine, it's not about Russia and Ukraine. It's really about the West and it's about t territorial integrity of Europe. After such bloody battles over the last um, 200 years and certainly the last 70 years, World War II, that, and, the, and the evilness of the Cold War and what that yeah. meant to people and the police states that we had to unwind, that 
that automatically the 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 reverberations of it are a lot more. And you can think about this just because we're off of the pandemic in a very similar way. Imagine that there is a small um, uh, a, a small illness, you know, communicable uh, disease happening in West Africa. That could be a real problem and a problem for that area, right? But if it only stays there, maybe or malaria is a good example of that because yeah. it's spread by mosquitoes, right? But it's not a systemic global one. But COVID locked down the entire world. And the reason why was because it was systemic. It was just a difference of magnitude. That explains, goes a long way of explaining the difference of it. But there's another element too, and that's this idea of the hypocrisy. Hypocrisy can't be measured on a binary scale of is it hypocritical or not? Frankly, everything in the world is hypocritical. There's no one who's purer than white snow. Yeah. So well, we apart can, from Jennifer we, Hudson, sorry, just carry. There you go. But the um but we have to look at the certain degrees of hypocrisy. And at, at a certain point, um, say that this is you know, outlandish and shouldn't be, particularly if it's not just you know, crossing a line, but, but obliterating the line and, and by multiple factors, multiple orders of magnitude. Um, I take your point, which is that, and it might be a feature, I mean, to be fair, I think it's a universal feature, but perhaps it's more prevalent amongst kind of younger observers, which is that you know, there's, there's such a high demand of how businesses should behave and how governments should behave. And, you know, and, and the moral purity test is often so you know, uh, hard to pass that a lot of young people are just dissatisfied with any, just anything the government does. It's just the government is tainted from the inside out. And so for that reason, you know, what's the difference between our government and North Korea? And you go, whoa, 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 there is a difference. <laughs> people really think that? I mean, is that a wise oh, yes. belief? Oh, really? yes. Big time. You know, I, I mean, one of the things I spent a lot of time with with young people, both folks you kind of work in the system, as you might call it, and folks who are activists who are on the outside, and even young people in schools. Institutionalism, this idea of seeing the world through its institutions, it, it's, it's, it's very much rejected by a lot of young people. Um, they, they really believe in individuals kind of, because, because the, what people are suspicious about, and I spoke about this in the last podcast, is that you can have the purest of intentions as a person. The minute you join a, an established system, then your values, your integrity slowly be corrodes because you have to make concessions and you have to kind of uh, be collaborative in nature. And some institutions just taint you. You know, case in point, a much simpler example is you've got a young kid who grows up in, you know, in a certain neighborhood. And so, you know, dreams of making that neighborhood better becomes a parliamentarian. And before he knows it, he's drinking champagne with, with, with pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical lobby groups. And he's forgotten about where he comes from. And he, before, like, you know, he, he just doesn't represent them anymore. That movement is what a lot of people are susp suspicious about. And if you look at the trust in institutions, whether it's media, whether it's politicians and politics, it's fallen it's fallen, it's fallen. And here we are at a state where the UK media has been the least trusted media outlet in Europe for, for 11 years, based on the Eurobarometer, 11 years. So, so you know, folks can go, oh yeah, it's just that people are slightly, uh, slightly uh, unimpressed. No, people don't trust the media system. And, and, and I think um, there's some serious questions that I think all journalists have to kind of ask themselves, which is, Okay, fair enough. As an individual, no one goes, I want to be corrupt. People generally want to make a difference. But what is it? What's compromised when you join a larger entity that's been, out for, that's been around for a long, long time? And why is it that people have such a deep distrust of politicians, politicians, journalists, these folks that wield great power? I don't, I don't have the answer for that, Kenneth. I mean, this is why I brought you in. I thought, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm throwing the ball you know, at you and saying, what are your thoughts on, on some of these things? I don't know the answer either. I agree with your uh, description of the problem, though. I think it is, um, uh, it, it's extremely serious. It's not new, of course. Trust in institutions has been, have been declining for years. The, the origin of this sort of societal distrust of government and then of the media dates back to war as well, World War I, uh, in which um, it, it all of the antecedents of the modern world were built into it, um, but in particular, a distrust of government. Before, before World War I, government was the mechanism by which people got the right to vote, yeah. in which uh, 
products that were expensive because there was lots of tolls and lots of tithes and taxes and tariffs on it were removed and freed. The liberalism and the liberal project came about not simply in, in terms of freedom, of freedom of ideas and freedom of speech and competition for, for power through yeah. you know, p- votes in the parliamentarian elections, but, but competition in the economic sphere as well. Prior to that period, the medieval period was one of getting a royal appointment to sell X or Y, or having ties in Britain, the corn laws, which was a tax on wheat, which made the price of bread very expensive. And people paid one third of their, of their disposable income on food in particular for the price of bread um, because it was so expensive at a time when it was just going into the into the pockets of the landed gentry. You could import um, uh, wheat from Spain, for example, which was yeah. uh, or from Ukraine, interestingly enough, which was a lot less expensive. Kind of wheat popular, uh, wheat, uh, exactly. global wheat supply. Yeah. yeah, Ukraine was before World War One. Uh, Ukraine was the known as the breadbasket of Europe. So, and that's and their flag, of course, is blue and yellow. The yellow yeah. represent wheat, and the blue the sky. So, there's this, there was this, this project of government in Britain, it was Gladstone primarily, who freed up the kitchen table, as the expression was at the time in the late 1800s, that government was the entity that improved people's lives. And a person living between 1870 and 1910, in that 40 year period, would have just been mesmerized at the changes. And you can imagine um, the the beautiful palatial buildings all along the Strand and and, an embankment in London today is testament to the grandeur of the country and and uh, and the buildings uh, in the east side of, of London that were like old age homes and veterans homes are for the generosity you know Sainsbury's mansions from Lord Sainsbury who's a, allowing a, a pensioners to live there right at discounted rates so all of that was destroyed in in the flames of World War One because we the people now distrusted their government because their government led them into this madness and then because of just bad thinking. Uh, because they didn't give anyone else a way out, right? Which is why it's important to tie back to the earlier part of our conversation. Um, a, a war that should have lasted for for two months or for six months or for one year yeah. lasted for four years. It made no sense. People in, two, in 1918 were just wondering how the hell did this happen? We're literally gassing our troops, using the instrumentation of modern society, in this case, chemical weapons, and, and just millions of people were dying. It was unthinkable. Uh, that's what I want to prevent when it comes to um, to the Ukraine. But tying back to what you've simply uh, put out, that distrust in government has existed for a while. And we do need to find new ways and new institutions to repair it when it comes to the media and when it comes to expertise and when it comes to politicians. And we, I think you're right in the problem. I don't know what the diagnosis is of, of what we can do about it, but I think it is as severe as that. And if what you're telling me is true that younger people are seeing some form of moral equivalence or lack of distinction between North Korea and Britain, they need to have their heads re-examined. I mean, um, that's, uh, this, so here's the thing. We, we agree on these things, but you know... <laughs> When we saw Donald Trump, you know, famously or infamously rather, say when when a journalist poses a question to him, like, you know, what's happening around in some of these totalitarian regimes is a problem. And he said, was well, the US so, so innocent? In that moment, he was channeling what a lot of young people believe about their own government, which is that it's just framing, right? Now, I think what's happened is probably... It, there's a there's this point you made that, that that maybe swept under all the other kind of amazing things you said, which is that I think as a generation we probably moved from a place of foolish foolishly accepting all authority to now foolishly rejecting all authority and a kind of polar opposite to kind of almost correct things. Whereas the healthy place to be is to be in the middle, ascertaining whether authority is legitimate or not, and being this kind of being this kind of skeptical critical consumer of news for se- per se not going it's all terrible there was a time where people believed everything that was on the tv now everyone rejects everything on the tv and it's like hold on hold on there's some things that's bad but there's something that's good and how we walk that tightrope of being balanced fair objective critical consumers 
is 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 where we're at now i i i think myself and people i know um have definitely been on the extreme of rejecting everything i'm kind of being an iconoclast you know everything is wrong i don't trust anything cherished and, and old and, and being in the middle is where people maybe ought to be now i'm aware that some listeners will go no mike i'm still on the edge and that's where i want to be because i don't trust the uk i don't trust the british press i don't trust the british government i get that but um, I'm not quite sure how we help those people leave those fringes because you're right. There are degrees of hypocrisy. There are degrees of corruption. And that nuance, it, 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 some people just aren't willing to engage with it, Kenneth. And maybe all we've done in this episode, and I know you've got to go, is, is, um, is put more problems out there. But um, I, I would love, I would love us to think about it, and I, I would love to have you back if you would have time to ex- to explore some of these things, because 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 there are there are they, they are very interesting, and, and I think they do take you know thoughtful kind of uh, uh, approaches. And I don't know what, what your instinctive thoughts are. So what you're calling for is the golden mean to to, to find something uh, in the center. That's and the I think Yeah, and I th- and I think that that's um I think that's oh, that's right. It's right in most cases. Uh, it's certainly right in, in, in this one, that we should be uh, suspicious and skeptical, but at the same time not uh, uh, able to make distinctions and, and not sort of divorcing our, our faculties of understanding good and evil uh, into some sort of gray twilight that where nothing is real and everything is relative. Yeah. I don't think that's right. And Ukraine is a perfect example of showing that. I mean, you can't have any sort of moral relevancy when one side is bombing another side. That's the one. And also... You could also imagine, I mean, to, to those people who who want to see a moral relevancy, you could maybe even understand an army fighting an army, right? You, you, even if it's been unprovoked, because when you, if you're a soldier in the Ukrainian army, you signed up to be in the army, and being in the army is about being a soldier and actually fighting someone else. But not when it's civilians, and the weapons that are being used in Russia are not against the military, the Ukrainian, they're not looking for the Ukrainian military. They're actually deliberately targeting civilians and bombarding civilian populations, non-combatants. And so that, of course, is reprehensible. These are people who are like you and me, right? That's the problem. The second thing to your point is that, um, yes, people should be um, more savvy news consumers and think about this and understand it and look at it and look at the antecedents and sort of view things. But I think that most people aren't willing to do the hard work. A lot of people want to hold opinions, but don't want to take the time to uh, scrutinize their their views, uh, challenge them, and to uh, and to shape their opinions around uh, the hard work it does to to think through issues um, and the second order effects around things. That's a big problem. So I so I don't think the problem is going to be solved simply by asking people to be more savvy, because few people are going to be willing to do the hard work. Frankly. Frankly, I, I I agree, I agree, and 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 here we are at the <laughs> the end of this, of this particular episode. No closer to any concrete uh, or clear answers on any on any any of these issues. But I, you know, thinking aloud, as you said at the start, has been um, helpful for me at least. But I think for folks listening and watching as well, that they, they would have found this very helpful. I I did imagine us talking about big data. Uh, a book you wrote, you know, for which you're you're you co-authored, and for which you're a New York Times bestseller. I wanted to talk about that process. I I, I briefed you at the start to say that we would spend a few minutes on Ukraine, <laughs> and here we are an hour. <laughs> we're an hour later. This is an insight to how our conversations normally go, just kind of into a foxhole, but but with lots of gold, I think. So, uh, Kenneth, if you'd come back at some stage, I would love to talk about you know big data, regulation, big tech, artificial intelligence. I think some folks listening will be salivating as I say those terms because you know they think you know with a metaverse looming. The, 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 you know, you would be right there in, in, in the middle of thinking about how we regulate and ensure that the, that the metaverse isn't just another way for externalities and disparities to be kind of, you know, just offset onto, onto minorities and things like that. So I would love a chance to explore that with you in the future. Now, I always ask um, older statesmen, and I only say that because of, in relation to me, <laughs> I'm like 10. But <laughs> 
I always ask them to, to leave us some passing wisdom. This is not a custom, but, but I just feel like so much has been said that if you could speak to the generation I, I just spoke to you about, the kind of, you know, the 16, 17 year olds, folks who may be very bright, leaving university, and, so, and a good number of them listen to this podcast, right? Who are wondering, how do I engage in the, with the world meaningfully? You know, what would you say to them uh, through that realist lens that you've kind of displayed during this conversation? Um, I don't want to presume to have any wisdom uh, for others. Um, I think some people do, but I, I'm not someone who I think does and wouldn't be able to sort of put it out very clearly if I did. But the one thing that I that I was teased about when I was very young, that only later more recently now I've been thinking about and realizing, yeah, that really defines who I am because I'd forgotten about it, but it was always so a part of me. I never saw it was curiosity. Um, I'm really, really curious. <laughs> I mean, like it's only as I've become a little bit older, have I been able to really feel self-confident enough that I actually go up to people all the time and ask them questions. And I have to preamble it by going up like, the other day on the road, there was someone taking a photograph of a Vista and I couldn't understand what the person was doing. So went right up. I, at first I walked away. I like, I don't notice these things like everyone else. Like I've got life to deal with and everyone else does as well. So I'm doing my thing. And then I stop. I'm like, what is that person with a high end camera actually doing? What are they photographing? Like what's yeah. the purpose? So I walk up and tremble up and I now have like a speech. I say like, Hey, sorry, world's most create, like, world's most curious guy here. I'm so sorry, but it's like I'm a curious guy. Just, I've got a question for you. What are you doing? What are you taking a photograph of? I've never had anyone be bothered by that. In fact, if anything, I get into situations where I'm actually running out of time and trying to leave, and it's been ten minutes <laughs> of a really interesting conversation. I've met people who break down pianos for a living, you know, and and to reclaim some of the parts. I've met a guy. I saw a guy the other day at a store who was dressed in complete, full military black SWAT gear with guns and knives and stuff everywhere and these weird pockets and stuff. And he had silver hair and he was like maybe 50 years old. And I'm like, like, what do you do for a living? Like, who are you? And he's like, and he, and he says some word to me and it's British, right? I don't understand his accent and all that. He says again, he's like SWAT team. I'm basically what you say in America, I'm a SWAT team. And I'm like thinking to myself, this is so amazing. Like how often do you actually interact with a guy whose job it is to like think about and interact and do things that are pretty unsavory? He wasn't, he wasn't at like a coffee shop was he or something like? No, it wasn't a coffee shop. We were waiting in line together at, at a store to buy something. And okay. I then realized I'm like, I'm like, but dude, I didn't say that, that was a little <laughs> more gracious. I'm like, dude, you're like an old guy. But so I said that, like, I was, I was like, I was like, you, you seem a little bit older. <laughs> he's, he's like, he's like, yeah, I know. And I'm like, so what are you going to do in 10 years? Like, where are you going to be? He's like, put on a suit and carry a Glock, right? It's going to be private security, right? And we have a lovely conversation. In fact, I really feel badly that I didn't exchange cards with him. Like, it's so like, yeah. stay in touch with him. You know, I am a journalist because I'm, because I want to make a meaningful change in the world uh, because I dislike journalism. And I think there's a value in, um, in doing it better than it's being done elsewhere because it is so important. I do want to repair the damage in society and let people trust media. And I think people can trust me because I feel a, a service of what I do as sort of a public service. But at the same time, I'm a journalist also because I'm very curious because I yeah. just want to understand things. And there happens to be also an absolute delight uh, that at least comes to me from interacting with people and understanding their worlds and their cares. So if that's useful to uh, other people, I would say be curious. Absolutely useful, useful to me. You know that, that that that's amazing. Thank you so much for being part of this, and I think I think this is almost like a part one because I think there's more, much more to explore. But thanks so much, Kenneth, for being part of this uh, this discussion. And we're done. But but before we go, please let me know how you found it. Did you enjoy it? Was it interesting? Was it not? Let me know in the comments section. And of course, if you want this podcast to grow, you want this podcast to keep doing well, then please do hit the subscribe button on YouTube or follow if you're listening uh, 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 to the podcast version of this conversation. And of course, please leave us a review. Now, there's always one bonus thing you can do for me every week that will make my week, it will make my day. And that is if you share this podcast with somebody. It's really hard 
to get new podcasts out there. But if you copy and paste the link, send it in the group chat, send it to some friends, you know, people who think want the kind of content we're talking about, then you can help this podcast grow. And trust me, folks, every share counts. So thank you so much. And I will see you at or in the next episode. Wanna be heard from the west to the east I worked in my craft and I prayed for my time on the scene The man have never left my team 19, love the right cream Now I'm not a right breed but I might be In my crease, nine kids, hit up my G I'll still never sell out my theme Well you know about heritage, you go inherit it Don't chill with the snakes with